We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. What is your relationship with alcohol like? Does it no longer make sense? Perhaps you've been thinking about these questions for a while. On the other hand, maybe I'm making you feel uncomfortable. Don't worry, my guest is not interested in persuading you to stop drinking, but to facilitate your awakening to a more fulfilling life. Veronica Valley has been a sobriety coach for 20 years. She's the co-host of the Soberful podcast and the author of a new book called Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. What I found interesting is that her five pillars are necessary for us all, sober or not. Now, Veronica, in our alcohol-saturated culture, going alcohol-free is shocking and taboo. Why should that be? It's really interesting that we're both British, but we both live in different countries. You live in Europe and I live in the States. We have a shocking relationship with alcohol in the UK. And I think that America and mainland Europe follows that. We've normalised abnormal drinking. My clients, the people that I work with, usually spend 10 years arguing with themselves about whether they have a problem or not. And a, a lot of that reason is because on the outside, if you've got a house and you go on vacation and a job and, you know, everything looks okay and you drink, then that can't be a problem. People kind of tend to think an alcohol problem is someone who's homeless and they're not that, so they don't have a problem. But in actual fact, we've normalized abnormal drinking through our culture and the person that I've just described is exactly what my client does look like because an alcohol problem shows up years, if not decades, on the inside long before it shows up on the outside. So it shows up in how really how we feel about ourselves and particularly one of the most common effects that people are struggling with is depression and anxiety. So on the outside, it looks all right, but the inside, it's very, very different. Does that make sense? It makes an awful lot of sense. I, one of my best friends had to give up alcohol because it really was not making sense at all. In fact, it was mm. quite destructive. And what she found incredibly difficult is there's sort of not one single event that happens in human nature nowadays that alcohol hasn't actually entwined 100% round. Yeah, alcohol, that's one of my soapboxes that alcohol has inserted itself into places that it doesn't belong and continues to do so. I mean, alcohol has been associated with sport for decades. But if you think about it, sport and alcohol are not two things that go together. <laughs> what A new thing that I've seen is yoga and wine. Yoga studios on a Friday night have yoga and then wine, not two things that go together. And another recent one that I've noticed, certainly because I have young kids, is parenting that it's a parenting aid, that mummy needs wine. So it is, it's associated with everything. But I got sober when I was 27 and I thought my life was going to be over. I mean, pff, I never thought I was going to have fun again, like never go out again, all that kind of stuff. And it's absolutely possible to navigate 
a wet world without drinking and, and not really even notice it. But you know what's really interesting is the biggest area of growth for alcohol companies is now non-alcoholic drinks. Now, one of the things that um, I thought was really interesting was thinking about what this tells us about our society. Mm. Why, why is alcohol so ingrained and entwined into everything? It sounds like we've got a really big problem, to be perfectly honest. If, you know, to be a mother, you need a drink. Yeah. I mean, we do. We do. And I'm talking about British culture in America, in Europe. We, we do. And we were just talking at the beginning. My mission is not to persuade people that alcohol is bad for them. My mission is to show people that actually not drinking, you don't miss out on anything. That being alcohol free, you can have this really amazing, fun-filled life. And the reason that alcohol is just so central to our lives and associated with everything is we have been convinced or indoctrinated to believe that alcohol is a benefit. And if you think about our culture, peer groups and our media, it all presents alcohol as a benefit. So I came of age in the 90s with the kind of Britpop, Ladette, you know, feminism was co-opted into alcohol marketing and it was specifically marketed to my generation as feminist, as you are equal, you can drink like the boys, you can go out and get plastered on a Friday night because, you know, you can do everything that men can. There was also the whole sex in the city kind of, there was just so much messaging that whatever situation I was in, alcohol would make it better. And also, not just alcohol, being blind drunk will make that better. And I totally bought into that. I, I thought that, that was true. And alcohol caused me consternation from the word go. I mean, I had really bad hangovers. It caused me anxiety. But I believed my job was to manage it. If I could find the perfect balance and formula to balance my drinking so I could have all of the benefits it promised me and none of the consequences, then I'd be great. And I tried really, really hard to manage it. And I'd say that's typical of everybody I work with is there's a, you know, you drink, you don't really think about it. It starts to kind of create problems, but you you believe the benefit, you know, is so huge that if you can just manage it, if you can just figure out managing well, it. It sort of helps you relax and makes you sociable, I think is what most people would say. And I would say that's a perception, not necessarily a reality. So here's the thing. Yes, it can do that. Yeah, it can help relax you because it's a central nervous system depressant and it can help you make be more sociable. However, there's always a cost. There's always a cost to drinking and we have to be prepared to pay the cost and we're not told about the cost. So recent research that's come out has shown how even very small amounts of alcohol, and I'm talking about three glasses of wine a week, which most people think is insignificant, is enough to raise your risk of breast cancer in a woman by over 15%, which is quite wow. significant. Then there's the fact that it is a central nervous system depressant and it's going to deplete your serotonin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably going to make you crave, you know, greasy, salty foods the next day. So there's a cost to it. And what I want to say is, when I stopped drinking at 27, I totally was signed up to the belief that alcohol was the best way 
to get to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing and rewarding myself. And I love that phrase of yours, the land. Let's just Mm. expand that idea out because it's just so beautiful. Tell me about the land that we're all trying to get to. Well, I mean, that's what we're persuaded that alcohol's a benefit. Now, who doesn't want to go there, right? I want to go there, especially when I was a teenager. I couldn't wait to go and have fun like I saw all of the people older than me were doing. So I was getting into bars at 14 years old. I couldn't wait to get all that fun and, and all those things. And when you get to the stage where you're kind of trying to manage your drinking because the hangovers or the embarrassing thing you said, or that you just feel low for a few days, or you just feel crappy or whatever it is, you're managing it because who wants to give up entrance to that land? Now, here's the thing. You can get to that land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing and rewarding yourself sober, and it's better. And that was the biggest revelation to me. So yes, you can have a drink to relax yourself and be sociable, but it's not necessary. And we have been persuaded that it is. And in fact, I'd argue that that experience is much better without alcohol and there's no cost. Because this is another thing you say, which I think is just beautiful, is that alcohol has lied to us. Yes, it's such a big thing. You know, I've had so many clients over the years where it's so clear it's not fun. It's so clear that it's pretty awful. But that delusion that alcohol brings those things. And what happens is commonly the journey is at the beginning of our relationship with alcohol, those things are true. Now, there's I was blacking out drinking when I was 15 years old and I had terrible hangovers, but I was 15, 16, 17. I didn't care. Like that, you know, I'd had these wild nights. Who cares about having a hangover or missing a day at work or college? I didn't care. It felt really worth it to me. So the fun and the excitement and the belonging and all of that that it gave me just felt like whatever price I paid felt like it was worth it. But slowly over time or quickly in my case, the price increases and the benefit decreases. And what happens is people 20, 30, 40 years down the road are drinking in the belief that this time it'll be like how it was in the beginning. Like this, this drinking will be like how it was 20 years ago. And we, you know, and it's such a fascinating as a therapist, it's fascinating the delusion and the denial that people go through. And it's it's really down to one thing. It's the fear of missing out. It's the absolute, like, yeah, I get it. I get that my wife is angry and I get that I feel crappy for two or three days of the week. I don't want to feel that way, but I don't want to miss out on the fun, excitement, belonging, connection. Like, so, you know, what's a person to do? Just kind of soldier on and, you know, hopefully I'll figure it out. And it's, I want to smash that to pieces and be like, none of that's true. You don't need to do any of that. I also want to point out, it doesn't happen like that on day two of sobriety. The first year to 18 months is a transition. You know, it's such an ingrained habit. So there is a transition period, which is where you need support and help, ideally from professionals, a therapist, a group, a community of some kind to transition. Early sobriety, that first year, 18 months, two years, is very different, very different to how it is long-term. And I think people get stuck there. They're sort of maybe sober three weeks or six months and they're like, "Mm, it's a bit better or it's a lot better, but I'm avoiding social things. It's like, I always try and make it clear. It's not how it is long-term. 
it's a massive habit and lifestyle change that doesn't happen overnight. But with time, things shift and, and then you get to this place where it's just, it's easier and all that kind of stuff. So let's imagine that the person we're speaking to today, yes, you, mm-hmm. is sort of wondering, should I stop drinking? Mm-hmm. How do they answer that question? That's a really good question. People with a problem with alcohol do four things. They drink, they think about drinking, and they think about not drinking, and they recover from drinking. So it's the thinking about... (laughs) That is just so wise. It's the thinking about not drinking is the big clue. So I always tell people, people who don't have a problem with alcohol, they don't do dry January. They just don't think about it. So here's the analogy that I use. If you think about alcohol more than I think about sandwiches, then maybe there's something that you need to consider here. So today at lunchtime, I might have a sandwich for lunch and I'll enjoy it. And then tomorrow I'll have some soup. And the next day I might have a salad. And then maybe at the weekend I'm at a party and a plate of sandwiches goes by. And I think, oh, a couple of those, that'd be nice. And then a bit later, the plate of sandwiches goes around again. I'm like, I'm good, thanks. That's literally how much I think about sandwiches in my life. If you think about alcohol more than I think about sandwiches, it's a red flag. So when we do that, when we do those four things, it eats up bandwidth. And by bandwidth, I mean our energy and our space to think thoughts. You know, that's a very common characteristic of someone with an alcohol problem is that arguing with themselves like, oh, I'm not going to drink this one. Yeah, a few nights off or not. And then, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, well, I'm, you know, if I just have one glass of wine, one, just one, but oh, should, it's all of that kind of, it just burns up bandwidth unnecessarily. Al- alcohol is an inanimate object. It doesn't need us to spend energy on it in the way that we do. And it becomes the main event. You know, we just spend way too much of our brain power thinking about it. So when we get sober, that's one of the gifts. And there's many, but this is one of them, is we get that bandwidth back. We get energy and space in our heads where we're not arguing with ourselves about whether we're going to have a drink tonight or not, how much we're going to drink, what we're going to drink and what other people may think about our drinking. And that, in my experience, Andrew, is where people's extraordinariness is in that extra bandwidth that they were spending on something that is really insignificant in the scheme of things. And you could be using that time to think about the topic that I'm most interested in, and I think you're interested in as well, is what makes our life meaningful? You know, Mm. why was I sent here? And I'm sure it wasn't to prop up a bar. Yeah, Absolutely. It's about purpose, isn't it? And I use that in the book a lot about talking about the main event. We get lost in the details of life. We live in two worlds. We live in the external world, which is what we look like, how much we weigh, what we have, how big our house is, what we do. And the internal world, which is inside of us, which is who we really are, our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs. But we get lost in the external world. We get lost. And alcohol is one of the ways that we get lost. Sobriety is a journey back to oneself. And that's the main event. Like my journey, my purpose is the main event, not alcohol. But what if actually alcohol is covering up a whole lot of pain so that uh, actually we don't want that 20% because the 20% mm. is going to say about mm. us because of you know either things that have happened or how we feel about ourselves. Mm. And typically that's the case. What often happens is we've defaulted to alcohol to manage our emotional lives. 
that's what I did. I didn't grow up with role models and I wasn't taught how to manage my feelings. Because you started at 14 dumbing them down. How would you learn to deal with your feelings if you can just, you know, open a can and that solves it in 30 seconds? Yeah. How did like, and I mean, like how to deal with disappointment or frustration or fear or anger or resentment or any of the difficult feelings that every human being has to navigate. I defaulted to alcohol to do that. And that's common for a lot of people and it works so effectively. It just takes that away like that. It's accepted by my culture that I, you know, I've had a bad day at work. I can have a drink. I've broken up with my boyfriend where I can get drunk. You know, I'm colluded with that idea. That's the bit about sobriety that I do, and I call it emotional sobriety, is it's not just about stopping drinking. It's about what was underneath that, what wounds and hurts and limiting beliefs and dysfunction was underneath that, because that's the bit that has to be resolved. And people only get to that point when they finally accept that alcohol's not bringing them things it promised. It's causing more problems And the only solution is to stop and to begin to resolve this stuff. And, you know, I'm sure you have this experience as well as a therapist. The avoiding it is actually harder and more painful than the actually working through. There's some kind of relief to finally begin to clear this stuff up. And every human being has this. Every human being has childhood wounds and and things that they found very painful that they don't want to look at or all of that kind of stuff. And there's, there's so much relief talking about it and getting it resolved and finding solutions. And facing the truth and being able to face the truth is a bit like having a superpower. Mm. What do you think of that idea? Oh, I love that. It is. It's from the, um, oh, I always forget which Greek philosopher it is. It's like, know thyself and a life lived unexamined is not a life worth living. Something like that. Yeah. It's an extraordinary, it's Jahari's window, isn't it? It's the self-awareness it is like a superpower. Absolute sobriety is a superpower because it gives you all of that. So let's look at your five pillars, which are the pillars for sobriety. And I would uh, hazard a guess also for leading a meaningful life. So the first one is movement. Mm. Tell me about movement. So I put the five pillars together as a program for people to understand what is required of them when they stop drinking, that just not drinking is not enough, that we needed structure and we need a program to work. So movement works in two ways. The first is just simply exercise. We know that exercise is probably the best treatment for depression, which is very common with people who have an alcohol problem. They've depressed their central nervous system. It's one of the best ways to take care of our mental health. So it works on so many levels. It's just creating that time in your day. You know, it's early in the morning. I'm on the West Coast of America. It's not even 7am here, but I got up before this because I wanted to get on my Peloton because it just starts my day really well if I've, you know, exercised. But it also, movement is also about being purposeful about the direction we're moving in, what we're moving towards and what we're moving away from. Because alcohol kind of takes over our lives. We're a little bit like a boat on the ocean without a rudder. We kind of sort of drift a bit, you know, we're paying the mortgage and we're in our job and blah, blah, blah. But we're not actually moving purposely towards something or purposely away from stuff. So it's about awareness. So it's really about exercise as a way to take care of your mental and emotional health and about making some decisions about where you want to go, like being purposeful, about being aware, about being awake, all of that kind of stuff. 
So give me an example of the answer to the question, what do I want to move towards? I had a client recently and she's, you know, she had young children and a nice house and her own business. And she was like, I've always wanted to be the kind of person who gets up and hits the gym at like 5.30, does a killer workout, you know, is dressed and ready before my kids get up. She said, but that doesn't really happen because I just feel a bit sluggish in the morning. You know, she said, I want to start running more. I want to take my business to the next level. And it's like on the outside, everything looked fine, but she was frustrated that she knew she was capable of more, but just didn't have the bandwidth. So when she stopped drinking, that's what she started moving towards. Like she was in the gym early. She was able to take her business to the next level. And the biggest thing was that she didn't realize she wanted, but was the biggest gift. She was much, much more present with her children. She said, I can be quite irritated and snappy in the morning, like get going, get to school, you know. And that was the surprise for her is that she wanted to move towards not being a sergeant major in her home, but just being really connected with her daughters and present and all of that kind of stuff. So I think all of us have that little like, oh, I wish I really would love to do that. Or I wish I was the kind of person who did that. Or I'd like to do more yoga or whatever it is. But we just don't have the energy or bandwidth. So when we stop drinking, the great thing is not just the bandwidth, you actually get time back and energy to kind of do all of this stuff. That you're not lying on the sofa going, woe is me. The next one is connection. Now you Mm. talk about three levels of connection. So one, why is connection so important? And what are the three levels? Yeah, well, connection is so fundamental. We can't live without it. We need it like we need food and water. And in fact, we'll die without e- it. babies, even mm. if you feed them and you do mm-hmm. everything that they need to mm. sustain, if you don't pick them up and hold them, they actually die. Yes. Yeah. We understand that about infants and small children, about attachment, which is the same thing as connection. But I think that we think as we get older, we don't, We need it at every single stage of our life. It's essential to us. I think that loneliness, we have an epidemic of loneliness, and I think it's a real distinct characteristic with somebody with an alcohol problem. I know it was for me. I just felt loneliness was going to kill me. I felt so lonely. And it's all to do with the connection with oneself. I wasn't showing up in the world as myself. And what I mean by that is I was very disconnected from who I was. Alcohol, it just cost a lot. So I wasn't a person of integrity. I wasn't a person of dignity. And and that cost a lot. I don't understand how you weren't connected to yourself. So I was a people pleaser. I cared much more about what you thought of me than what I thought of me. So I'd often say things or do things to get you to like me and approve of me, even if I didn't necessarily like you myself. And I would do that. And then I would afterwards feel shame and regret. And I was just so disconnected from myself. I couldn't connect to what I wanted or what I, you know, if you like hamburgers, I liked hamburgers. Maybe I like hot dogs. I don't know. But if you like green, I like green. I I couldn't. And if I wanted to take you to the opera, you'd go off to the opera, whether you wanted to or not. Yeah, because I couldn't be, I wasn't connected with, with myself. Alcohol causes a disconnection. So the first connection is to your true self. What's the second connection? Yeah, I would say the journey in of sobriety is the journey back to oneself, who you really are. That I don't care if 500 people like hamburgers. I like hot dogs and I'm just, I don't really care what you think about that. I just like hot dogs. It's a journey back to oneself. So there's three levels of connection that we all need and it's intimate, 
which is somebody who really knows our soul. And I go at lengths in the book to describe that that's not necessarily a romantic partner, although it can be. It can be a best friend. It can be a mentor. It's people who really know us and know our souls. That's a a true component of connection. The second level is we all need friendships. And then the third level is community. We need to feel part of our communities. And we need to have all three of those to not feel lonely. So when I was in Cambridge in England with my husband before we were married, I had all three levels. I had my husband and I had my best friends and I had a friendship group and I had several communities I was part of. Then when we moved to America and I had my first baby, I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends locally. So I had my husband, but I was very, very lonely because I didn't have the other two levels. So we have to be conscious about connection. I tell this to my clients all the time. Unfortunately, no one's going to come knocking at your door going, hi, we heard you're great. And why don't you come out with us? (laughs) Like they do when you're little, you know, on your street, people come knocking door, go, do you want to play? We have to show up in places and we have to show up consistently and we have to allow people to know us. And kind of movement and connection are the first things I get people to work on. And often when people come to me, they've burnt a lot of bridges or they feel quite disconnected from everybody. Then the place to start is sober support groups, of which there's many now, online and in person. Alcoholics Anonymous is the biggest one, but there's others. There's Women for Sobriety, there's Refuge Recovery, there's Smart Recovery. I mean, if you just kind of go on Yahoo, there's like sober running clubs and all kinds of things. So start there, if nowhere else, because you don't have to pretend you know, it's not like the PTA meeting. You don't have to pretend if you go to a sober support group that everything's just fine. And we can start with connection there, but we have to have connection. We'll die. We'll just die without it. And one of the problems of going sober, I would imagine, is you've got lots of friends who are going to give you kickback. Mm. Um, They're not going to be very thrilled about the fact that you've gone sober. So you Mm. need to make new connections. What do you do about people who are non-supportive? There's nothing like getting sober for finding out who your real friends are. It really upsets the apple cart and uh, people don't like it is the general experience. And here's why. If I, you know, if you're my social group and we drink a certain way and I've stopped and I've said, you know, I doesn't really agree with me or I don't like it or I'm, you know, for whatever reason, and I drink the same as you, what does that say about my drinking? People take other people's sobriety very personally because what you're doing is culturally, we are all very, very signed up for and invested in the belief system that alcohol is the best way to get to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, blah, 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 blah. You're showing me that that may not be true. You're just shattering my whole perception and belief system of life. You know what's really interesting, Andrew, when I've been promoting this book and I've done a lot of media and I've spoken to lots of producers and journalists about TV shows and all this kind of stuff. I've come across some journalists and producers who are either sober, sober curious, or know someone close to them who's sober. And they're the ones who have interviewed me and got me on shows and that kind of stuff. And then I've come across journalists and producers who drink, however they drink. And they're like, yeah, that. Mm. but could you come on and give us some tips for cutting down? Tips for cutting. And it's very insightful for me is that Generally, we are not interested in being presented with, you don't have to drink to have fun. We shut that down and I want to smash that. So that's what happens is in our friendship groups, if someone 
is not drinking and starts to look great and, you know, is having a good time, that is shattering a core belief that I've never questioned that I have. And it's really frightening for people to do that. It's that profound. I've seen it over and over and over. We don't want to be shown that I can have just as much fun with alcohol. Like people do not want to see that. And so what people do in friendship groups is it's much easier for me to persuade you that you don't have, let's see, you don't have a problem. Like maybe cut it out a couple of nights. What are you talking? You don't have a problem. Like you're fine. It's much easier for me to persuade you to drink again than it is for me to reflect on my own drinking behaviour. And then we need the third pillar, which is balance. Tell me about balance. So whatever the question, balance is always the answer to whatever (laughs) question we have. And balance is, I call it the art of balance. It's a lifelong exercise in balancing our needs. Let me try. What's the answer to the meaning of life? Balance. (laughs) How is balance the answer to the meaning of life? Because the meaning of life, it's going to mean different things for different people. It's incredibly individual. So if it's, I don't know, perhaps your work, maybe you're a physicist and it's you're solving some problem in mathematics, that's only ever going to work if you're in balance. Yeah, one of my, gives me meaning, is doing this podcast. But Mm. once a week is more than enough. Otherwise, reading the book, doing the research and everything else like that, I'd just disappear and nobody Mm -hmm. would ever see me again beyond on Mm. the podcast. So you're right, the answer is always balance. Balance in all things. How do you use balance to help your clients? What most people, and particularly women, because I work with a lot of women, it's it's about recognising our needs and balancing our needs. And I think as women, we're quite conditioned to believe that our needs are not as important as other people's needs around us in our family and even in work. So it's recognizing our needs. So the first thing we do is is the halts, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed. Those are all needs that need to be balanced. Just give us that again slowly, because that's really good. Halts, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed. And those are the times when you're likely to fall off the sober wagon, is that the Yeah, idea? when we get out of balance, you know, I mean, hungry is something that can't wait for too long. It can run us ragged. I know I've definitely drunk alcohol instead of feeding myself nourishing food because I've run myself ragged. Anger, you know, what's often underneath anger is fear. But if we're just angry all the time about the circumstances of our lives, eventually we're going to get to a point where we want to anesthetize that. The same with loneliness. It's just insufferable to be lonely, tired, you know, just burning the candle at both ends and stress. They're, they're all triggers. So we, what I do really, and what the book is, is really personal development is life skills. These are just life skills that everybody has. And the thing is about balance, it changes as our circumstances change. And the best example of that was two years ago in the pandemic, All of a sudden, everybody's circumstances changed overnight, but we still had needs for connection, for exercise, for eating healthy food, for working, etc. And we all developed different ways to meet those needs. Like I remember we bought bikes right at the beginning of the pandemic and we would get up early as a family and bike around our neighborhood for exercise and then we would often visit neighbors, you know, like they'd be on their doorstep and we'd be at the end of the driveway like, hi, how's it going? 
to meet our connection needs. So we still had those needs. We just met them completely differently. So that doesn't ever go away, you know, as our circumstances change, as our, as we age, how we meet our needs will always change. You know, we think we've got it down and then the next month, I don't know, we're injured and we can't exercise or we move or we change job. So being aware of balancing our needs. So we know when we're out of balance, we will feel uncomfortable in our own skins. So we start to feel uncomfortable in our own skins when we're out of balance. And that's just a red flag that we need to pay attention to something, that there's something we need to do. So once we've actually paid attention to the halts, the hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, what do we do? Then we have to take action. And I widen it out. You know, there's, we, we have all different needs. If you imagine a plate and it's divided up, we all have like mental health needs, spiritual needs, work needs, career needs, family needs, health needs, etc. It's about taking a moment and looking and where is this depleted? Where am I not? You know, I haven't had, I've been wor- working, I've been working 12, 14 hours a day on this big project. I've hardly seen my kids or my family. I just need to just not do anything this Saturday and we're just going to hang out in the park and do that. Or, you know, I just haven't seen my girlfriends for ages and I'm just dying to get together and just have that, you know. So it's about pausing and looking at your plate. Where are you out of balance? You know, I I notice it when I don't exercise. You know, if I don't, you know, for whatever reason, usually travel or something like that, I just haven't exercised properly. I just feel it. I just feel like I'm, you know, I just miss that. And I just, we kind of feel it. So it's really learning a language and it's learning a skill. It's beginning to recognize that as we go along. And, you know, the biggest thing is listening to our body because our body will tell us. So the fourth pillar is process. Yeah. So as as therapists, we we love process. (laughs) Process work is, it's about understanding how we are the way we are. And I'm sure you have this, but you know, it's about understanding our past, particularly our childhood, and how it shows up in our present. You know, and I have clients who say, I don't want to go digging up the past or raking up. I don't want to do that. And I'm like, it's with you every day. Like the reason that you have that issue with your boss or the reason that you continue to have that arg- same argument with your partner, that's your past. That comes from a belief system that you adopted when you were a kid. So it's really, it's about self-awareness. It's about understanding why we are the way they are. And everybody has some kind of wound that they're carrying, that they're not healing, that they're using alcohol to just kind of paper over. So it's about finally doing that stuff. And I ask them to picture themselves like, you know, picture when you were 14 and your dad died or whatever. We're honoring that 14-year-old. They really need to be honored and validated and cared for and healed so we can move on. So it's really about doing the deeper work. And it always, you know, no people that I was, I was like, I'd rather pull my eyes out than have to do any of this stuff because it sounds painful and uncomfortable. But the way that I was living was painful and, and uncomfortable and repetitive, you know, just the repetition of patterns. It was mind blowing to me when I discovered that I could change that. So a lot of this is skills. For me, one of the core pieces of work of sobriety is looking at our resentments and understanding and having a tool to be able to process through resentments. That for me has given me the most liberation. Okay. So give me an example of a resentment from your own childhood and how understanding that resentment has helped you with your process. So 
resentments work in two ways. Everyone has big resentments. So everyone has typically, you know, parents, siblings, partner, best friend, you know, the big relationships in our lives. So I was resentful at my mother for everything, absolutely everything. And the way this works, and this is what's so phenomenal about it, is my mother has, I grew up as a single, my mother was a single parent. She has lots of undiagnosed mental health problems. And I was constantly angry and resentful at her because she always did these things. Now, what the resentment work helped me get free of is I've known my mother my whole life. And I would keep expecting her that today she will turn up and be a rational, responsible human being. But guess what? She turns up today like she always turns up. And she does her thing that drives me crazy and I get angry and we get fractious and blah, 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 blah. The resentment work helped me see that the problem is not my mother. The problem is me and my expectations. And that if I shifted my expectations to acceptance, that this is how she is, this is how she operates. She has her own childhood wounds, blah, blah, blah. Then I began to respond to her differently. And I got out of the trap of this just constant me being resentful at her for not being the way that I wanted her to be. That's what is at the core of resentments. People are not the way that I want you to be. And I need you to be this way for me to be happy. And that's what's so amazing about the resentment work is I can't wait for you to change for me to be happy. I can't wait for you to apologize for this thing you did 20 years ago that really upset me and hurt me for me to feel okay. I have to have the power to feel okay and to be free of that stuff. So it's really about getting freedom from the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. But then there's also resentments. We Every human being picks up resentments. You're not human if you don't. Like I was a class mom for my kids a couple of years ago and I sent out some photos of class trip we did on my email. My email signature has like, you know, creator of the Soberful program or something. And a mother emailed me back saying, thank you for the photos, but why is there a picture of my child next to a statement about alcohol problems? And I was like furious. I was like, what the? That's a resentment. And and it rented space in my head. And I was we know we have resentments when we start planning revenge. I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to send an email and I'm going to show her. I'm going to like don't you know who I am? Like I can't have that stuff in my head burning up energy unnecessarily. It's ridiculous. So I have a written process. It's based on rational emotive behavioral therapy that I take my clients through where we write out our resentment so we can identify the irrational belief that is fueling these thoughts in my head. Because it's not the other person. It's never about the other person changing. It's about me changing my response to the other person. So process work for me, a core part of that is the resentment work. So I can have freedom in my mind and I can be free of the good and bad opinion of other people. And that leads me to understanding my limiting beliefs, which we all have, the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. I love the idea of resentment work. And then we come around to the fifth one, which is growth. And you say there's the true essence of all work, whether it's soberful or not, it's a sort of marital work that I do, Mm. is revealing ourselves to ourselves. Expand that for me. 
Yeah, growth is the gift. You know, growth is the gift of sobriety. We are all being called to grow. You know, as long as we've got breath in our body, we're being called to grow. And what goes hand in hand with growth is we will always meet fear and resistance because, you know, it, it's like it might be a new career or do, whatever is calling us to grow is new and new is always scary. So we're always going to meet fear and resistance. But this is the process that we have to engage in. And all of this work reveals ourselves to ourselves in ways that are sometimes uncomfortable, in ways that sometimes like, oh man. (laughs) But all of that is such, it's just such wonderful fuel for the growth. Because if we're not growing, we're dying. And you just have to look around to see that that's true in nature, in businesses, in people. And I felt like that when I was drinking. Like on the outside, you know, I was in university. So you'd think that that was growth, educating myself. I was engaged, but I was dying on the inside. I was just holding on, barely holding on to my sanity. And I was dying on the inside. I was in a holding pattern. And lots of people I feel are in holding patterns. It feels like they're moving, but they're just in a holding pattern. So what the beautiful gift of sobriety, and this is the reward, is you will get the call to grow. When I stopped drinking, I just wanted like a flat and the anxiety and depression to go away in a job. And I never thought I'd be here doing this with like that. This is beyond my wildest dreams, but this all came from the call to growth. And the reason that I can honor my call to growth is I have the bandwidth to do so. And that's the big thing is that when you get your bandwidth back, when you get that energy and space in your head that was previously dedicated to alcohol, extraordinary things can happen. And I've seen that so many times. And I don't mean like necessarily like, I don't know, you write a life-changing book or... And Oprah Winfrey becomes your best friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can just be extraordinary with your kids or in your garden or in your work or whatever, but it's all our own version of extraordinary. And this is the gift of life. Don't miss it. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it will become a shared space, somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. You can also go to my website. You'll find details there, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, where you can write in and get the combined wisdom of all of my guests to look at something that's going on in your life and that you would like some second opinions on. And um, I found something that is sort of alcohol related. Mm -hmm. So help us with this one. My girlfriend has a complicated relationship with alcohol. Sometimes it is fine and other times she can have too much to drink and gets angry, blaming and abusive. Generally, it's hard to predict how things are going to turn out. Sometimes I think it might be about what happened between us over the last few days. Other times I can find no rhyme or reason. 
We've talked about this many times, and she agrees that she has a problem and talks about getting help, but nothing sticks. I have two problems. Firstly, when I'm with her, I drink more and occasionally it can tip over into recreational drug use too. I would like to stop this. Secondly, how should I be around alcohol with my girlfriend? Should I not drink, especially at home when she wants to open a bottle? Can I have a drink when we're out with friends? I know I can't change her drinking habits, but I want to be supportive and not make things worse. So we can't persuade our nearest and dearest Mm. to stop drinking, but we can work on ourselves and alcohol. And I'm not quite certain how those two things fit together. Yeah, this is a great question. I think it's very common as well that people are in this situation when they're in a relationship. And the first thing is what I'm pulling out of that is is everything that I've just said. It doesn't sound like fun, does it? I mean, it doesn't sound that alcohol is bringing... It sounds horrible. Yeah, it doesn't sound like alcohol is bringing good things to their lives and their relationships. But I'm going to guess they both believe that it does, even though it's kind of really clear that it's, I mean, maybe it's fun for five minutes, but the cost sounds really high. Yeah, it doesn't sound attractive at all. So that's the first thing is this delusion where we we are stuck in this delusion. And I want to say, like somebody else might say, well, you really, you need to really cut down. Cutting down is a myth. That's, a, you know, the first thing that people try and do on the journey to actually stopping. So what I would say is what he needs to do is focus on himself first. People don't want to hear that they have a drink problem and they don't want to hear that they need to stop. So I would not say anything about her drinking at all, but focus on yourself. And I would propose, why don't you explore sobriety for one year? I don't know how old they are, but they sound like they're fairly young. Let's say they're 30, for example. Alcohol's never going to go away. So you could have a good 50, 60 years of drinking ahead of you. I'm just asking for one year, which is not a big deal. The reason for a year is you can go through the whole cycle of a year. Christmas, New Year's Eve, birthdays, barbecues, all of the things that happen in and a typical year. And you would year. not drink even on New Year's Eve when everybody's no. passing around a glass of champagne? You, would no. say you wouldn't even have a, a sip then? No, no. Why not? What's the harm of that one glass of wine on a special occasion? First of all, that's the belief system that alcohol will make this occasion better. And I'm going to say that this is problematic drinking because they can't control how much they drink and it often leads to recreational drug use. That never changes. So your brain chemistry has altered. Your brain remembers how much, it doesn't matter if it's been 20 years, my brain remembers how much alcohol I require. So I can't have one because my brain goes, oh, this stuff, this is how much of this we need. So you're making it very hard. Like it's back to the sandwiches analogy. People who are like, well, I'm just going to have one and it's loads of effort and you have to use willpower. And then it just, none of that's fun. So there's lots of wonderful alcohol-free options now on the market. You could have an alcohol-free glass of champagne or glass of wine or whatever. The second thing is I would strongly suggest that he gets some help with from a professional, preferably from a community, because you don't want to feel like you're the only one. So the most effective thing you can do in this relationship, like when, when it's in this way, is not talk about the other person's drinking, but focus on being sober. And after a year, you can make a decision. If your life hasn't improved, if things haven't got better, alcohol's always going to be there. Like I said, you've probably got 50 years ahead of you if you want to carry on drinking. But the chances are it is going to improve. Now, what happens with the other person is it's not what we say, it's what we do. So they will see 
some changes in you. And those will be positive changes overall. And it will have a bigger impact on the relationship. Things will be calmer and it will hold up a mirror to their drinking. It's not uncommon where I've had someone in a relationship where they both drink, where someone stops and then there's a lag and then the partner follows down the road. Down the road, they stop drinking as well. So it will make or break the relationship. I'm going to say carrying on like this isn't an option. It looks destructive. It looks horrible. It doesn't look like it's fun. Give sobriety a try. What have you got to lose? Do the work, do the emotional work, get some support, be part of a community. Alcohol is like a seesaw and one end is drinking and the other end is sobriety. And we get sober by putting weight on the sober end. So do lots of things to support your sobriety and your mental and emotional health. And eventually that weighs down and gets embedded in the earth and everything shifts. So I got sober at 27, completely believed my life was over. I'm never going to have fun again. I'm going to be really boring, never going to go out. By 28 and a half, I was going out to nightclubs with my friends dancing sober and I was going to gigs and I was going to concerts and I was going to festivals and I was traveling around Europe. And I, my mind was blown at how much fun I was having and what a great time it was. But you couldn't have convinced me of that when I stopped at 27. There was no way I believed that was true. You have to give it a bit of time to just see if things could be different. And if it's not, you can always go back to how it was. And so what did you do? You sort of went home at two o'clock in the morning and they sort of stayed out till five. Is that how it worked? Not even that. I would always drive. So I always had control. And I would, you know, I like love to dance and I was young. So I'd love to flirt with boys too. And I'd go and do that. And then I'd find about midnight was when people are a bit drunk and the cocaine comes out and drunk people are incredibly boring and not very interesting. So I'd be like, I'd, I've been out, dressed up, I had a dance, I've had a little flirt, time to go home. And I'd be up at Sunday and running, you know, going for a run and getting the Sunday papers at 8am feeling pretty good. I remember going to concerts, seeing like my favourite band with people who drank and like our favourite song would come on and they're lining up for the toilet or they're getting another beer. And I'm like, they missed, like we paid a lot of money. Like I'm there every song, like every moment. And I'm like, they're not even fully present because they think having alcohol at this event will make this event just that much better. And I'm looking at them going, you're missing half of it. It's all about perception. Perception is everything and it is everything with our relationship with alcohol. So back to this guy, give yourself some time and support to see if your perception about alcohol and your relationship can change. And I'm going to say it can change for the better in a ways that you can't even imagine right now. But it also might cause even more pain between him and his girlfriend. I can imagine her, when she's been drinking, having a go at him for not drinking. Yeah, and that's probably very likely to happen. And that's one that, you know, it's things like in the life skills that we need to learn. One of them is having boundaries, you know, not putting ourselves in situations, you know, not arguing with a drunk person or not trying to persuade her. It's about having boundaries. I'm sure it would actually make her really, really angry at first because it usually does. But this can't continue. This isn't going to go anywhere. Like alcohol and drugs, a miracle's not going to happen overnight and everything's going to be better you know, you can keep going as you are and it's only going to get worse. I can guarantee you that. Or you can try something different. Yep. Doing something different is going to change the dynamics. Let's Mm. hope it changes things for the better. Mm. 
So I need to turn the spotlight on you because we've been talking about what makes life meaningful. So what makes your life meaningful? Getting sober profoundly changed my life and it allowed me to be who I really am. And that's constantly evolving and growing and changing. And I have such gratitude for that. I was sleepwalking through my life and I'm doing the opposite of that now. And that's the meaning of life for me, is really being able to be the fullest version of myself. And getting that 20% of bandwidth back makes all the difference. It's everything, yeah. It's an extraordinary gift. You know, all of the work that I've done and being a therapist, I always tell people when, like, the work that I've done on myself, I've gone to the bone. Like, I had to go deep with my own personal work. And that was such an infinite gift. When I was doing my training, I did a retreat with a therapist and he was an ex-Catholic priest. And he said, this is my answer. I remember him saying that there's so many people in this world and some of them are boring and some of them are not very interesting and some of them are unattractive. He said, but whenever anyone opens up their inner world to me, I'm infinitely fascinated. And I was like, that. That's the meaning of life. Because actually, drunk people are all the same, really. So boring, yeah. So, unfortunately, that's where the conversation ends for most people. But if you'd like to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get the bonus material, I'll explain how you can do that in a moment. I'm going to pull up some of the ideas in the book. Veronica's got some really interesting things to say about boundaries and how to deal with the afterburn of putting a boundary up. So you'll hear about that. And I've pulled out, because she's great at asking questions, I've pulled out seven really good questions that she's got to ask us. So if you'd like to hear that conversation, here come some of the details. You can subscribe directly if you're an Apple podcast listener, the same with Spotify. Otherwise, you can go and become a Patreon supporter, and you can do that by going to to my website. Here are all the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.